0: All right, good evening everybody. Wow, man, you guys are so awesome about putting things in the comment section. As soon as I turned on the program, bam, all these messages. That is outstanding. So I'm gonna give you a big hello. Guys, before we get into all your questions, and wow, thank you for all the questions. I got my list right here. 29 questions. I think that's a record. By the grace of God, I'm going to try to answer all of them within an hour's time. So before we get into that, I got a song that I'd like to play for you guys. This is actually um, like a, a kid's mix tape, if you will. There's three different songs put into one little video, so I hope you enjoy it. And this alone will only take a couple minutes, and then we'll get straight to your questions. That Jesus loves even me. All right, guys. If you can, please pray with me, and then we're going to get right to your questions. We got so many of them, so many good ones tonight. Father, thank you. I've been looking forward to this. I pray that you please teach us something from the Bible tonight, Lord. We believe that all the answers we need are in that wonderful book. Thank you for loving us so much. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to jump right in. As always, if you hear something. Uh, that's not super clear and you'd like some some more of an answer on it you can just slip it into the comment section but uh, i'm going to try to to give you as much of an answer as i can in the time that we have so let's get right to it how tall was the tower of babel great question so i've started us off on genesis 11 and let me bring you to verse number four this is where they're building it and they said go to let us build us a city and a tower Whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So, that middle part of the verse, whose top may reach unto heaven. Now, you might think, wow, that is super tall because it's going to stretch from the earth all the way up to where God lives. And that's not what they were trying to do. There are actually three levels or three stories to heaven. So just like a building can have three stories, God built the universe so that there are three heavens, one stacked on top of the other. The first heaven is where the clouds are and where the birds fly. The second heaven is where the sun, the moon, and the stars are. And then there's a big ocean type, a big body of water, like a massive ocean on the other side of the stars. And then after that, you get into what the Bible calls the third heaven, and that's where God lives. Now, when it says, well, let's build a tower that may reach unto heaven, they wanted to build what today we would call a skyscraper. So they wanted to build a building that were a tower that would reach all the way up to the clouds so that if somebody stood next to this building, and looked up, it would just keep going up and up and up. You'd see the top of the building right up there with the cloud. So, And God actually said, they're going to accomplish this. And that's when he confused their languages. They wanted to build the city and tower and leave God completely out of their society. And that's why God didn't like what they were doing. I don't know exactly how tall the tower was. N- nobody does. It's not written down anywhere in the Bible. Um, but if you just look at skyscrapers today, hundreds of maybe even thousands you know it's, I'm, I'm more familiar with the feet a few thousand feet tall so I guess that would be a, maybe a thousand two thousand meters somebody can give me the exact measurements of the skyscrapers but several hundreds or even maybe a couple thousand meters tall alright good question next one how many wives did David have hmm well we know of three 3 We're given the names of three of them in the book of 1 Samuel. We have Michal, Saul's daughter, Ahinoam, and Abigail. Then when we get to 2 Samuel, after David becomes the king, the Bible just says that he took many more wives, and then it gives a list of the names of his children, but we don't know exactly how many wives he, he had. So, I'm sorry I can't show you a verse that would give you a precise number, Um, But yeah, we know that he he had a few. All right, next one. What did the lions in the ark eat? Now, of course, we're talking about Noah's ark. What did the lions eat? This is a great question because lions, as we know them today, they would pretty much eat all the other animals, right? So this is a good question. If you have lions in the ark, aren't they going to eat everything else? And if they're if they don't eat everything else then the lions would die right because they don't eat for many many months that's how long they were in the ark so it's a good question alright couple things that you need to know about about uh, animals let's take you to Genesis 1 and uh, verse 30 alright you can see verse 30 there and to every yeah, verse thirty. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. So, what did all the animals eat in the beginning? They ate vegetables. They ate plants. This even lions. They ate. They ate. Uh, that fruit, fruit and veg and herbs, we don't read anywhere that their diet changed until you have Noah coming out of the ark in Genesis nine. So in Genesis nine, something strange happened. It says in verse two, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. So now all of a sudden the animals become afraid of humans. That wasn't the case before. Uh, So something definitely big changed between or with the animals and between animals and and humans. So it looks as if lions were eating grass or herbs or vegetables. And actually today they still can do that. Animals that eat meat, we call them carnivores. There are some of these animals, I think you would call it an omnivore, where they can eat herbs, or they can eat meat. So it wouldn't be totally strange if a lion, um, even the lions that, that are alive now, right? they could probably exist without meat. They may not be as strong, but they probably could. The, before the flood, I would say most definitely they didn't eat meat. And that's why they were able to get into the ark and not attack the other animals. Let me show you another verse that has lions. And I think we might have looked at this last time just a little bit. But when Jesus comes back, he's going to fix nature and the animals are going to calm down and they're not going to be afraid of humans. We looked at the verse how a little child can have a lion for a pet. I think, yeah, in verse 6, you can see the wolf also should dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fat lean together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. So what it looks like when Jesus comes back, he he puts things back the way they should have been. So this, is, this tells me that before the flood, this is probably what lions were eating. And now Jesus is fixing things and putting them back to how they should be. So I Because Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. I think we can learn a lot about what the animals ate back then from these verses about what the animals will eat in the future. So I hope that makes sense. Uh, Here's another thought, though, on what did the lions in the ark eat. There's a good chance that Noah did not take fully grown lions into the ark. Right. That is, There is a chance of that. He might have taken little lion cubs, and therefore they would have been e- drinking milk and eating very soft and easy to digest things. And then as time went on, those lions would have grown. And then after coming out of the ark, they could have reproduced. So that's also an option. All right, next question. Why did Jesus only have 12 apostles? Now, let me make sure that I make a distinction here. Disciples and apostles are not always the same thing. You can be a disciple of Jesus. Everybody should be a disciple of Jesus. That means you're a learner. That means you learn from Jesus. So everybody should be a disciple. But to be an apostle means that Jesus has called you and sent you out to do a very special job. So all of the apostles were disciples, right? They were disciples, then Jesus called them and sent them but not all disciples become apostles, right? You can still learn from Jesus. He may never send you to some other place to do a special job for him, like starting a church or preach or something like that. So why did he only choose 12 apostles? Well, that, that number 12, I, I, I don't know. Jesus didn't say, I'm only choosing 12 and here's why. There's no verse in the Bible that tells us that, but I know this, the number 12 is very unique because it goes directly with the nation of Israel. And this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. We see this. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, is called out by God. In Later in Genesis, we see that Jacob, who his name was later turned to Israel, he has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. When Joshua enters into the land... He hands out 12. He he divides the land into 12 pieces uh, for all the sons of Israel. And then Jesus has 12 apostles. I'm going to show you some pictures in a minute of New Jerusalem. It has 12 foundations and all the number 12 constantly shows up when we're looking at the nation of Israel. Now, why is that? To be honest, I don't know. I don't know why the number 12 constantly shows up with them. I'm going to say that That's probably why Jesus chose only 12. It has something to do with a connection to the Jewish people. But other than that, I can only give you an educated guess. It's a good question. It's a valid question, but I'm not really sure why just 12. All right, now we got a few questions about old people. And I keep telling Amy that I'm old. She says, Dad, you're not old. So I've tried to choose some pictures of some very old looking people. I don't think I'm that old, right? Please tell me I'm not that old, but here's some good questions about older people. Why don't people now get as old as they did in the Old Testament? In Genesis five, we have people, Adam, he died when he was 930 years old. Do you know the oldest person ever? The oldest one recorded in the Bible? I'm gonna give you just a second. You can tell your mom and dad if you know the name. His name was Methuselah. Methuselah. Any guesses as to how old he was? He was older than Adam when he died. Adam was 930. Methuselah, I'm going to put it into the comment section. He was 969 years old. That is super old. So how did these people live so long, right? Sometimes they lived 500, 600, up to 969 years old. Before the flood of Noah's time, the atmosphere was different. And the earth was different. The earth had not been affected by so much pollution and filth. And um, there are just a number of things that have changed the way that the earth grows food. And and when Noah's flood happened, it changed the air around us. That's part of the atmosphere. So the Bible does not have a verse that says, this is why you're not going to live as long. But again, I I, I think, if I understand correctly, because of the environmental changes, the food and the air around us, uh, that has the most to do with why people don't live as long uh, since the time of the flood. Now, interesting note. After Jesus comes back, right now, we are going to have glorified bodies. We're going to talk about that tonight a little more. Um, So we're never going to die. But there will be people that are going to be naturally born and live on the earth. And they will again live 500, 600, up to 900 years old. So that is going to happen again. But remember, when Jesus comes back, he fixes everything. So the food is better. The animals are better. The air is better. And that's why I think people are going to live longer at that time all right next one how were people in the old testament able to live so long i think these two questions go really well together right i am pretty sure that's going to be the same answer um they had better food to eat they had cleaner air um beyond that i don't have any verse that tells us exactly why that is but i like said those two answers i think go together And then how could those old people have children now this is this is very smart because you have people that are 800 years old and yet they're still having babies right how can that be now remember if we met somebody that was 800 years old whoo we would not expect them to be having families right to be having more and more children That's because when we see somebody that is 80 years old, they're already done having children. Their bodies can't produce the right energy to make more children, so it's done. But that's because we age so much faster. The people before the flood, they didn't show their age. Their bodies didn't wear out as quickly as our bodies do. So you might think of it like this. Somebody that was, let's say, 500 years old before Noah's flood, that would be the same as meeting somebody maybe 30, 40, or 50 years old today. So that's how they were able to still have children. Now, after the flood, we do read about one lady that had a baby when she was very old. She was 90 years old, and this was Sarah. But God did something miraculous, right, and allowed her to To have a baby when she was very, very old. And this surprised her, it surprised Abraham. Abraham was 99 years old when he became, uh, when he heard the news about becoming a father. He was 100 when the baby was born. But that was a very unique and special circumstance. Um, Beyond that, right, people just don't have children that late because we age so much faster. All right, why can't we live beyond the age? of 120 years old now. Now, I put all these age questions all together. Why can't we live past the uh, age of 120? Now, where did this question come from? Well, in Genesis chapter 6, and and I've actually been asked this uh, from some other people before. Verse number 3, Genesis 6, 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Now, some people, when they read that, they think, okay, God has now determined that people, that humans can only live to 120 and that's it. Um, I don't think that's what God was saying here, but that's where that idea comes from. I think what God's saying is, I, from this point, from, from right now, the time of Genesis 6, If you go 120 years into the future, Noah's flood happened. And he said, all of humanity gets 120 years to get prepared for the end of their civilization because the flood was going to happen and wipe everybody out. So I think that's the 120 years. After the flood, there were people that lived beyond the age of 120. There were actually many people. After the flood and after the Tower of Babel, uh, men begin to spread out all over the earth, and, and they were living 300, 200 years. They were living quite a long time. Abraham, if my memory serves, he lived to be 175, I think it was. Um, so, so people did have a, a lot longer lifespan. But remember, they were closer to the flood, and they didn't have as much pollution, and there hadn't been as much wear and tear on the earth at, at that point. Um, some people use this verse, to talk about how long we can live. Uh, let me give it to you here, Psalm chapter 90 and verse 10. The days of our years are three score and 10, which means that's a fancy way of saying 70. And if by reason of strength, they be four score. So score is 20, 4 score, that's four times 20, which is 80 for those of you doing mathematics. Uh, by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off when we fly away. So it looked, Moses actually wrote this psalm, and it looks like he's saying we're only going to have 70 years, and if you're really strong, you get 80 years, but even then you're going to have to work hard to get to 80. So obviously people live past the age of 80. This isn't like the cutoff. It's not like if somebody turns 80, oh, shame, now you have to die. It's not like that. Um, if, if people take care of themselves and they're, they don't get sick, then they might live. We know people today that live up over 100. I think the oldest one I've heard of is something like 120, something like that, uh, or 119, something like that. Even in my lifetime, I've heard of that. Um, so who knows? Maybe you'll live to be quite old. But there is no cutoff for our age. We don't have to worry about that. All right. Next one what does heaven look like oh great i love getting to talk about this okay i'm going to let you do more homework sorry i know that's kind of a bad word eh? but i'll let you read more about this later this in revelation 4 john the apostle he's taken up into heaven and he was given a tour so if you want to know what heaven looks like You can read this chapter, Revelation 4, Revelation 5. Revelation 5 doesn't tell us so much about what heaven looks like. It just tells us what uh, Jesus is doing and things like that. But verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. So he has kind of a reddish color to him. Now, the reason God appears with this reddish color is because he has fire moving up and down in him. And this we know from Ezekiel chapter 1, which if you want to know more about what heaven looks like, you can read Ezekiel 1 and find some amazingly fantastic details about the cherubim. We're going to talk more about that later. Uh, Wow, interesting creatures they were or are. Uh, in verse 3, And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. You might know the color of an emerald is green, a very dark, rich green. And it says this rainbow that was round about the throne looked like an emerald. So the rainbow was green. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Because rainbows usually have seven colors in them. Green. And I don't even think green is one of them now that I think about that. However, this rainbow is green. It has the shape of a rainbow, right? There's the throne, and then there's a, a rain, the shape of a rainbow. There's colored light over the throne, and, and the color of the light is green like an emerald, but the shape is that of a rainbow. Now, I'm going to let you read the rest of the chapter later, and it tells you what's around the throne. tells you about the four beasts, the four living beasts, which I think are very similar to the cherubim. Maybe they are cherubim. Um, amazing chapter. Now, I want to also say this. If, if you go to heaven right now, you would see Revelation chapter 4. You would see the throne of God. You would see Jesus. You would see an altar. There's an altar up there, and our prayers actually get poured onto the altar And it's kind of like smoke going up before God. It's all explained in Revelation chapter 8 about that altar. There's angels, so many angels, and they have trumpets, and they sing, and they blow the trumpet. There's so many details there. But a lot of times when people talk about heaven, they're actually talking about something different, right? Heaven right now, that's where God lives. That's where people go um, when they're done on this earth, when they die. They go to be with Jesus in heaven. That is where they are but one day heaven and earth are going to pass away. And the Bible says at the end of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, that a new heaven and a new earth come down and God God makes these new things and then new Jerusalem comes down. Now that is actually where we get to live forever. And the picture you're looking at on the screen, that is a picture, not of heaven, but of new Jerusalem. And it's a city built gold I'm gonna put one more picture up here covering the verses this is if you were to stand back and look at the city that's kinda what it would look like that's how it's described in Revelation 21 you see those foundations under the golden wall there are 12 foundations all different precious stones different colors and the names of the 12 apostles are written on the 12 foundations so Maybe that's why Jesus only chose 12 is because there's 12 foundations to this building. But when Jesus said, "I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also." This is the place that he's building for us. All right. So that is not only what heaven looks like, but our eternal home, New Jerusalem. Okay. This next question, why are we all unique? Well, That's a good question. I'm not, there is no verse that says uh, God made all people different because of this. I'm going to give you my best guess on this. God likes variety. How many of you would want to eat the same thing every day for the rest of your life? Right? Now, you say, well, if it was chocolate or if it was ice cream, then I'd love it. But, you know, if you ate it every day, all day, it would, you'd get tired of it. You wouldn't like it as much. I think God likes variety. Right? Can you imagine if your mom and your dad looked alike? Can you imagine? Right? Isn't it wonderful that they look different? Wouldn't it be boring if all of us liked the same exact things and nobody ever had a, a new thought or said, Hey, I like this other game. Let me teach it to you. We, we, we really, um, I think we don't even recognize how important it is that we are unique and how much flavor that adds to our lives. So I, I believe that God, he likes all the differences that um, he made possible when he created uh, heaven and earth and the people and the animals. I think he likes the variety. I don't have a verse though that tells us exactly why he he allows for so much diversity, but it's a good question. I'm glad you're thinking about that. All right, when Jesus comes, will he take everyone to heaven or only some people? All right, let's give you a verse for that. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 16, the Bible says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. So the people that Jesus are going to take are the ones who are in Christ. Now these, when he says the dead in Christ, these are people that were Christians. They were saved. They had received Jesus as their Savior, but then they died before Jesus came back. Now, we call that the time that Jesus comes back. We have a name for that. It's called the, the rapture in Africanians. Let's say Vechrapen. And anybody that died before the Vechrapen, the rapture happens, they get to come up first. They are the dead in Christ. And verse 17, this applies to you and I right now. Then we which are alive and remain, if you're a believer in Jesus, that's you right now. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord now Paul uh, with the Lord now Paul is talking to a specific group when he says we he says in verse 13 right up here but I would not have you to be ignorant brethren concerning them which are asleep that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope so he says there are some people that have no hope they They don't know what's going to happen to them when they die. We know what's going to happen, but they don't. When they die, they just say, "Well, I hope it works out." I wish, I wish I go to heaven. But they don't know for sure. We have a wonderful hope, which is an expectation, that when, when our life on earth is done, we're going to be with Jesus. In verse fourteen, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. So, when Jesus comes. He's not going to take everyone to heaven. He's going to take those that believe that he died for them and rose again. So that's the group, the ones that are in Christ, both those that have died already and those of us that are still alive. When he comes, we all get to go together. Okay. And then this question kind of goes with it. When we have glorified bodies, will we still have a desire to sin? Wow. I'm I'm glad you're thinking about this. And I think this is the best part of the rapture. Now, when the rapture happens, Jesus is going to call your name, and then he's going to say, come up hither. Now, he'll do it in whatever language you know best. So he will say to me, Mike, come up hither. And boom, in a moment, in a oomblek, in the twinkling of an eye, I'm going to be changed. I get a brand new body. That's the glorified body. So it's the same kind of body that Jesus had when he rose from the dead. We call it a resurrection body. I'm going to have that. You're going to have that. And in this resurrection body, you can fly You can fly faster than the speed of light. You can eat anything you want and you won't get fat. That's amazing. You can walk through walls. You can go right through a door. You don't even have to open the door. You can walk through the door into another room. It is amazing. The Bible talks about somebody trying to hurt us and they can maybe stick us with a knife. It won't even hurt us. That's this glorified body. We cannot die. And the best part of it, right, is not that you can eat and not get fat or walk through walls. The best part is you don't have any temptation to sin. You will not have what we call the sinful nature. So to answer this question briefly, no, you won't have the desire to sin. You'll never have a wrong thought. You'll never say the wrong thing. You'll never... Uh, You'll never need to apologize to anyone. And best of all, you'll never have to apologize to God. You are going to have a sinless body. Wonderful. All right, this is a deep question. Why did God only make one planet with life on it? All right, you ready for this answer? Here we go. I don't know. (laughs) I have no idea. I have no idea. The Bible doesn't even tell us why precisely God made the other planets, right? Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus. I, I, don't, I don't know why these other planets are even there. Again, I'm just guessing that they are there to keep everything balanced, right? Because there's gravity. And if there weren't other planets, we might get sucked in closer to the sun, maybe. Maybe. Maybe that's why there are so many other planets. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Why did he make life, this special form of life known as humans? Why are we only on this planet? Why not Mars? Well, if you you were to try to put life on Mars, it couldn't happen there because it's too far away from the sun. It would get so cold that it couldn't live. And if you tried to put life on Venus, the planet closer to the sun or Mercury, it would burn up. So this is the only planet suitable for life. It's the only planet that can sustain life or keep life on it and keep it alive. But why did God make it so that this is the only planet that can do that? I'm afraid that you're going to have to wait until the rapture. And then you can ask me this question again, and then I'll give you an answer. But for now, I don't know. Sorry for that. Does God ever sleep? Or rest? Okay, here's the answer. No and yes. God never sleeps. Let me show you a verse that proves that. God doesn't need to sleep. Of course, he's God. So look at this. God is always awake in that he's always aware of what's going on. Psalm 121, verse 3 says here, he will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He'll not allow anybody to push you around. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Slumber is a fancy word to say sleep. So God will not sleep. Verse 4, behold, he that keepeth Israel, so God's watching over Israel, shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. All right, so God doesn't sleep. However, does he rest? Well, let's take a look here. In Genesis chapter 1, it says God saw everything, uh, verse 31, is where I'm at, at the bottom there. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And then chapter 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested... On the seventh day from all his work which he had made. Now, some some people would read this and say, ah, you see, God got tired because he worked so hard during the six days and therefore he needed to rest. And that's not what happened. It never says that he got tired. What happened is God was busy and worked very hard to build heaven and earth. And after he had worked for six days, on the seventh day, he did not work. So if you're not working, you're resting. And it doesn't say that he needed to rest. It doesn't say he had to rest because he was tired. He simply did not work on the seventh day. So this allowed his, if you want to think of it like this, this allowed his hands to cool down because he was so busy putting everything together. But that doesn't mean his hands were tired, right? When you're busy with your hands, you can, your hands can get hot. And God, when he stopped working for a little while, his hands just cooled down. So when we think of God resting, it's not the same as a human being who works hard, gets tired, then needs to rest. God simply, he had done his work and now it's time to rest on the seventh day. So he did not work, thus he rested. So you can see there, God, no, he he never sleeps, but he does rest. Not like laying down taking a nap, but he does rest in that he's not always busy working. All right. How will we be able to see God in heaven since he doesn't have any skin color? Let me give you the background on this question, because this is a very layered question. The question was originally what color was Jesus? Jesus wasn't black, Jesus wasn't white. Jesus was Jewish, so if you were to go to Israel today, or you were to go, let's say, to Saudi Arabia, that's kind of the skin color Jesus had. It was a maybe an olive, like a very brownish kind of color. So in between, black and white. So Jesus was Jewish, so he had that in-between color. Um, Now Jesus, right, he is God. So this begs the question, once Jesus goes back to heaven, does this mean God is also this brownish color? And that's, that's not the case. Jesus, when he goes back to heaven, we can read in Revelation what he looks like. right? But when we're talking about God the Father, the Bible says God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like you and I know it. So he doesn't have color, black, white, brown, any of that but he does have an appearance. You can see something. So even though he doesn't have a particular skin color, he does have a shape, he has a form, and there is something to see. So let me, I mentioned earlier Ezekiel chapter one. I'm gonna show you a few verses now. Verse 26, and above the firmament, firmament is like air, like a cloud, and above the firmament that was over their heads, was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. Now, you're actually reading about God. God has the shape of, a like we know, a man. Now, remember, we were made in God's image, so it makes sense that we have a similar shape. Verse 27, And I saw as the color of amber. What is the color of amber? Have you ever pulled up with your mom and dad at a stoplight, or I say stoplight, sorry, you guys say robot. I'm still not used to that. You pull up to the robot and there's red on top, there's green on bottom, in the middle, it's actually not yellow, it's amber. So amber is a yellowish color. I saw as the color of amber as the appearance of fire round about within it. <clears throat> sorry, for, from the appearance of his loins, even upward, from his waist, upward. And from the appearance of his loins, even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire and it had brightness round about. So there was fire moving up and down in God and moving up and down in his legs. That's the appearance of God. So how would you be able to see him? Well, that's how you would recognize him. He's very unique. No one else looks like that. Now we can't see him now with our bodies, with our eyes, because we're just human. We have limitations. But if you take away the human body, you still have a human soul. And the soul of a human being can see these things because a soul never ceases to exist. It continually goes on somewhere, heaven, hell, somewhere. So you take away this human body, you'd be able to see these things. So that's how we're going to be able to see God in heaven. All right what was the best piece of land in Canaan? So when Joshua led the uh, Israelites over the river Jordan and the walls of Jericho fell, and then they conquered the land of Canaan, he separates it into 12 pieces. Now the map on the side here is very small. So I've made a bigger one here, same map, but you can see these different uh, land grants, right? They're named after the tribes of the Israelites. There's Dan, Naphtali, Asher, down here in the south, Judah, Simeon. <clears throat> All right. Which one was the best? Well, that's like asking, uh, what is the best dessert in the world? Well, somebody's going to say chocolate. Somebody's going to say um, white chocolate, you know, dark chocolate. Somebody will say ice cream. Somebody will say donuts. What was the best piece of land? Well, I'm sure that if you were to ask them back then, they would have different answers. They'd say, My, I like mine the best. So I like mine the best. I think a good argument can be made for Judah having the best land because Jerusalem is found in Judah. You might see that on the screen there. And Jerusalem is the city of the great king. That's where Jesus is going to sit down on the throne of his father David and rule the world there. So I, I think a strong argument can be made for Judah being the best, but it depends. Are you talking about the best, like uh, with the strongest people? Is it the best for like growing corn? Uh, It it would all change on what you think makes something good. But remember, the land of Canaan was also referred to as the land of milk and honey. So all of it, when they went there uh, originally, it was all a beautiful land. Okay, next question. What is Gog and Magog? Now this question, the There were several questions packed into it so i'm condensing this one a little bit what is gog and magog now we read about these two places in revelation chapter 20. i'm going to give you the verse now where we read it Uh, in verse 8. it says now talking about the devil he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth gog and magog to gather them together to battle the number of whom is as the sand of the sea." So this is at the very end of time, and Satan is trying to gather everybody he can to fight against God. And Gog and Magog are involved in this. But who are they? Who are they? So let me give you a couple verses that will help us understand who they are. Now, the the name Magog, the first time you read that in the Bible is Genesis chapter 10. He's one of the sons of Japheth, or Yopheth, I think you guys say. Um, and that's he's just a boy. He's just one of the sons of Japheth. That's it. When we're talking about Gog and Magog, right, this is something unique and prophetical. So Ezekiel 38, 1, and the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, set thy face ag- set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So Gog is actually a person. Gog was the name of the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. And many people think that Meshech is the same as Moscow. And Tubal, also another city near or in Russia. I, I, I'm not even going to attempt the current pronunciation, but there's another city that's close to that. All right, so Gog is the name of a person. Magog is the name of the land that Gog ruled over. So Gog, the land of Magog. So the, the Ma- Magog is the name of the land. Now, you see this again in the next chapter. Therefore, thou son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, thus saith the Lord, behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. All right, so what is Gog and Magog? Gog was a man's name. He was the prince. And then Magog was the land that he ruled over. You can see on this map uh, next to the question, Magog. You see that? And then there's a red country above it. That's Russia right now. And Magog, even now, I think it's uh, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, and there are different countries there. But biblically, back in the time that the Bible was written, what we now call Russia, I think, would have kind of swallowed up Magog as well. So a lot of people put all that together just to be one big country, and that is Russia. All right. I hope that helps with that part of the question. Here's the another part of that. Are Gog and Magog under the devil's power? Um, that's tricky. Right now, well, the devil is, let's say, deceiving the nations even now, right? So is does the devil have power over, over them? Yes, a little bit, but not in the way that we read in Revelation 20 or even these verses in Ezekiel. These are prophetic verses that are going to happen in the future. So the devil is going to have more power over these specific uh, this person and this place uh, in the future, and he's going to use them to attack Israel and try to do different things. Uh, so it kind of depends on what we mean by power. But yes, the devil is going to use that person in that place. And then this one, will the devil send monsters to earth during the battle of Armageddon? All right. Before Jesus comes back, there's a time that we call the tribulation. And there are going to be things that you might consider a monster. Now we are going to leave in the rapture before any of this happens. So please don't be scared. But In Revelation 9, I'll let you read more about this later, there are some strange locust-type creatures that come up out of the bottomless pit, and wow, do they hurt. When they sting somebody, it hurts for five months. Five months. And then you can read about their description in verse 7. The shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And they had on their heads crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men... And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. So I don't know if that's what you think a monster would look like, but I kind of think it is. Um, then there's another kind of creature that comes out during the tribulation time. That's in Revelation 9, yeah, verse 17, 18. I'm going to let you take a longer look at that later. Some str- It's horses, but not like we know them now. They have the body of a horse, but the head of a lion, and their tail is actually a snake, and it's strange. All right, now, that's before the Battle of Armageddon. That leads up to it. But during the Battle of Armageddon, if I can get the verse for you, we read this. This is all building up to it. It says, for they are the spirits. Oh, let me get, yeah. Verse 13, Revelation 16, 13. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, That's Satan. Out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist. And out of the mouth of the false prophet, that's a helper for the Antichrist. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So this, that great day there, you can see in verse 16, it's called Armageddon. That's uh, the battle and the place that they're going to be fighting All right, so monsters, yes. Maybe not like we think of monsters or see them in the movies, but yes. Um, And I don't think it's necessarily the devil that sends all of them. I think God even allows some of these creatures to come as a punishment for the people that are on the earth. Because remember, the saved people, they got taken up to heaven. All right. So I hope that helps. Next question, what did the devil want to do with Moses' body? Hmm. So let's take a look at this. In the book of Jude, we have one verse about this, verse 9. It says, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. so Michael, he's the strongest of all the angels. He is fighting or arguing with the devil about the body of Moses. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why the devil was so interested in the body of Moses, but I'm gonna show you a verse here that might help us figure that out. And again, this is gonna be a little bit of guessing, but there is a verse here, so. Deuteronomy 34, verse five. It says, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor. But no man knoweth of the sepulcher unto this day. A sepulcher is a grave. So nobody knew where the grave of Moses was. And it says that the Lord buried Moses. Now, what's interesting is we read about Moses later in the Bible. He shows up and talks with Jesus. Right, so this is interesting. What happened to Moses' body? Did God bury it and then not tell anybody where it was? And is it still in the ground somewhere? Or did God bury him and then later on take the body out of that grave and take it up to heaven? I, we don't know. Why did the devil want the body of Moses? Maybe because God was hiding it. The devil thought, well, this body must be important. And therefore the devil wanted to have it. Nothing would tell us that the devil knew about the plans that God had for the future, right? The devil doesn't know the future. The devil only knows what God says out loud. The devil can't read minds or anything like that. And we now know that there is a plan for Moses to come back. And he's actually going to be part of the tribulation. He's going to come down to the earth and he's going to preach. I don't think the devil knew that. But if the devil did, then maybe the devil would steal the body so that he could stop those prophecies from happening. But I don't know if the devil knew about those prophecies. So it's a very good question, and I'm very limited in how I can answer that. All right, another Moses question. Why was Moses adopted by the princess if all the baby boys were supposed to be killed? All right, good question. And I have a very simple answer for you. It was mercy. That's it. The princess, the daughter of Pharaoh, just wanted to have mercy. Um, yeah, this is the story where it happened. Exodus 2, verse 5. The daughter of Pharaoh, Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And she calls for a Hebrew woman. And uh, it just so happens that Moses' older sister, Miriam, she was watching all this happen. She runs down and says, ooh, can I go choose the lady for you? She said, sure. And Miriam actually goes and gets Jochebed, which was uh, Moses' mother, and calls her. So Moses was actually raised in his earliest days by, by his mother. But Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, did not have Moses killed because she had compassion. It was just that. Even though Pharaoh had made a law that the baby should die. All right, one more Moses question here. How could Peter recognize that it was Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? This story you find in, uh, in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew 17, you read about it there. This is... Whoever asked this, you're really thinking about this story because um, Moses and Elijah come down. Peter, he's asleep for the first half of this event. He wakes up. He's never seen Moses and Elijah before. How does he know what they look like? Well, here's a couple things that I'll suggest. One, there were drawings right? People knew how to draw back then. They didn't have cameras, right? They didn't have cell phones to take pictures and selfies and post it on Facebook and stuff, but people could draw. So maybe there were drawings that were accurate and helped Peter figure out who these guys were. But maybe, right? I heard one person say, maybe they had name tags. Hello, my name is Moses. Hello, my name is Elijah. I don't think that, happened, but um, interesting thought. Maybe, maybe Peter woke up and he listened for a few minutes. And as he was listening to Jesus talk, Jesus might have mentioned their names. Maybe that's how Moses, or uh, Peter figured it out. Or maybe just by listening to Moses and Elijah talk, he could realize, wow, this this guy is talking about Parting the Red Sea. This guy's talking about um, calling down fire from heaven. These are things that Moses and Elijah did. So maybe from the content of the conversation, Peter was able to figure out who it was. But again, the Bible doesn't tell us precisely how he knew that, but those are a few, I think, possibilities. All right. How did people in biblical times celebrate birthdays? Okay. There are a couple of birthdays mentioned in the Bible, that's not one of them. <laughs> Sorry, let me see if I can get the the birthday. Well, Pharaoh did have a birthday. Where did he have a birthday? I'm almost certain it was in this chapter, where the baker and the and the butler have dreams. Yeah, I think I was right in the first place. Pharaoh had his, oh dear. I'm going to struggle to find that verse. There's, There's a verse in here that says Pharaoh was having a birthday. Shame, I'm so sorry. Rather than take time to try to find that exact verse, Pharaoh was having a birthday and he threw himself a feast, right? So he had special things baked and he had special things to drink. So he threw himself a party, much like people do today. Um, In Mark chapter six, we have a story here. Oh boy, God help me. I hope I'm getting the right place now. Uh, There's another birthday mentioned. Surely there's a birthday mentioned Ah, there it is. Okay. Mark 6, verse 21. Sorry for all the scrolling. And when a convenient day was come that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains and chief states, when the daughter of uh, the said Herodias came in and danced. So he threw a party. He invited a bunch of special people and they had dancing, they had music, they had fun things to eat and all of that. Now something horrible happened at this birthday party, but People celebrate birthdays now, much the same they did in biblical times. They threw parties and had fun times and nice things to eat. All right. Has Satan been replaced in heaven? Deep question. Let's look at the answer I can give you real quick is no, he hasn't been replaced. But I want to show you uh, something about Satan. There's no other creature like him. Nothing. So this, I think we looked at last time, how the devil has this beautiful covering in verse 13. Verse 14 says, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. So there was no other creature like him. And he had a special spot over the throne of God. He kind of hovered there, like floated there. The other cherubim, there were four other cherubim, one on each corner of the throne, right? So if you think of like a square, there was four cherubim. And then on top, you had the devil floating around. Or at the time, he was just the anointed cherub. So when he fell, no one ever replaced him. God didn't fill that, that spot because there's no other creature that could do what, what he did that had this beauty, that had the pipes and the, you know was able to produce this sound and the, and the music that he had in him. He was a very unique being. All right, not replaced. How many brothers did Goliath have? All right, we're talking about the giant Goliath. How many did he have? So the Bible does actually talk about um, Goliath's family a little bit. First Chronicles chapter 20 verse 5: There was war again with the Philistines, and Elhanan the son of Jair slew Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite. The brother of Goliath the Gittite, whose spear staff was like a weaver's beam. And yet again, there was war at Gath, where was a man of great stature, very tall, very, very broad, whose fingers and toes were four and twenty, six on each hand and six on each foot. He had six fingers and six toes. And he also, the word also, he also was the son of the giant. Hmm. Interesting. Verse 8, these were born unto the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Interesting. Interesting. In another place, it talks about how Goliath had four sons, but because it says Lami was his brother, it looks as if Goliath was the brother to these people and the father to these people, which means Goliath must have married his mother, which is very strange very wrong. Shouldn't do that. So I'm going to say that Goliath had four brothers. If I understand the passage correctly, he had four brothers. One of them we read here is called a brother. The other, they're also called his sons, because that was unfortunately true. Now, let me show you one thing that I think a lot of people kind of read quickly and don't consider much. When David was about to go fight Goliath, remember, he killed Goliath with a sling and a stone. But look at verse 40 here. This is the chapter where David did that. And he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had even in a scrip. So he wrapped it up in a little leather bag. And his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. All right, he chose five smooth stones. How many did he use on Goliath? One. Now, some people will say he, he chose five because maybe he misses, or maybe Goliath blocks one because Goliath did have a shield. All right. Goliath actually gave it to his armor bearer and didn't take it into battle. But maybe David was planning on Goliath ducking, dodging, and blocking, and maybe that's why he had five. Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe David figured there's Goliath plus four brothers. So I got to be ready to take down all five. Maybe. Maybe that's why. All right, let's get to the next question. Um, We just have a few left. So I know I'm a couple clicks past seven o'clock, but don't worry, mom and dad, we're almost done. All right. And you guys haven't left any comments in a while. So let me know if we're doing okay. I hope I'm not going too fast. Was Goliath the biggest in his family? Uh, The Bible does not tell us how big these other brothers slash sons were. So, I don't know. I don't know. Ooh, those words got really big. Um, Okay, sorry. All the scrolling is hard on your eyes and my eyes. Uh, I just want to... Find the verse that tells us how big Goliath was. Forgive me, I did not find the verse earlier, so just take five seconds here. Let's see if I can find it. Well, if somebody can help me with it, maybe you can, Oh, there it is, there it is. First Samuel seventeen four. There went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. A cubit is this long, right? It's from my elbow to the tip of my fingers. That's one cubit. That is half of a meter, right? So six cubits is three meters. Now a span is about the length of your hand, okay? So Goliath was three meters tall, plus another hand on top of that. So a little more than three meters. That is huge. He wouldn't fit in my, in my house at all. Um, now, if a cubit is the size of your arm, from the elbow to the tip of the finger, what if they're measuring this by the size of Goliath's arm? What if he's six cubits by his arm? Wow, he might even be more than three meters. He was massive. I don't know if he was the biggest in his family, but that whole family was huge. All right, almost done. Why did God only give Daniel the answers to the king's dream? This is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And the handwriting on the wall. Now that's Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Why not someone else? Very good question. Daniel was humble. Daniel was not going to steal the credit He wouldn't say, look at me. I figured out the answer all by myself. He wouldn't do that. Daniel was going to give God the glory. And Daniel's the one that actually stood up and said, hey, I believe God can actually show us this. So because Daniel was brave enough to say, I'll pray about it. And I believe God can show me. I I believe that's why God said, well, here's somebody who is willing. And he's not going to try to steal credit. He's going to give God the glory for it. So I'll use Daniel to do this. And over and over again, we see that God chose Daniel because he was very faithful, very humble, and he wasn't afraid to tell people sometimes what was bad news, which the handwriting on the wall was definitely bad news for that king. Um, when Nebuchadnezzar started to say, yeah, he said, you should, you Tell me the dream and tell tell me the interpretation. The the other wise men, the astrologers and the magicians and all of these people that thought they were smart, they started to say, they answered again, said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show the interpretation of it. The king had forgotten the dream. So he wanted these people not only to tell him what the dream meant, but tell me what the dream was. The king answered and said in verse eight, I know of a certainty that you would gain the time because you see the thing is gone from me. He says, you guys are just stalling. The king, uh, verse nine, but if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you, for you have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. So he said, I know what you guys are gonna do. You're just gonna tell me something that fits with what's going on today so that I believe it. He says, I don't want to hear your fancy political speech. I want to hear the truth. And Daniel was going to tell him the truth. So I think that's why God chose Daniel and and not anybody else. All right. And this last question, I saved it for last because I think it's the best. This is a great, great question. Everybody needs to know how to answer this. How do you believe in Jesus? What a great question. What a great question. All right. Boys and girls, have you ever heard your mom or your dad say, I love you? I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. Do you believe them? Do you believe them? When mom or dad says, booty, sissy, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take you to this special place, and we're going to do this, and I'm going to get you that, and we're going to have this you know, kind of fun, do you believe it? Yes. Yeah, you say, great, and you start to get excited. Why do you believe what they're saying? Because you know that they love you, and they have proved to you over and over again that if they tell you this is what's gonna happen, they follow through with it, and they do it, they do it. So how do we believe in Jesus? Well, when Jesus tells us that he loves us, has he proved it to us? Yes, he loved us so much that even though we had done bad things and we deserved not just to get a hiding, to get pox law, we deserved a big punishment. Jesus loved us so much, he said, I love you, I'm going to take the punishment for you. Jesus then tells us, now that I have died for you and I rose again, I can give you eternal life. I will live in your heart forever. How do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust that he's telling you the truth? When Jesus says, I want to live in your heart, and you say, okay, Jesus, I believe you're telling me the truth. I I don't think you'd lie to me. Then when you agree with him and say, okay, Jesus, if you wanna live in my heart, I'm gonna let you live in my heart. I want you to live in my heart. I wanna live with you forever. I wanna walk with you every day. That's how you believe in Jesus. When he promises you something and tells you, this is what I'm going to do for you, you say, okay, Jesus, I don't think you're lying. I think you're telling the truth. That is believing in Jesus. So another way to think of this, if somebody comes to your house, Knocks at the door. What do you do? What do you do? You don't just open the door. That's very dangerous, right? If somebody knocks at the door, you go towards the door. Maybe you check out the window, but you want to say, who is it? You want to find out who is knocking at the door. Now, boys and girls, you might want to go get your mom and dad if somebody's knocking at the door and let them ask. But you understand. If somebody knocks at the door, who is it? Now, imagine if Jesus came to the door and knocked. What would you do? Who's knocking? I'm Jesus. Jesus, wow. Now, you'd want him to prove it. Jesus could hold out his hands and you could see the nail prints where the nail went into his hands. He could show you his feet, show you his side where they put the spear in. He could prove that it's him. He has identification. And when you open the door, Jesus gets to come in. Now, believe it or not, Jesus knocks at the door of our heart. He knocks, and you can feel that he's trying to come in. He wants to be in your life. He wants to live in your heart. And when he knocks, you say, Jesus, is that you? You ask, is that you knocking on my heart? And he says, yes, buti, sissy, I want to be your savior. I want to live in your heart. I want you to live with me forever. You say, okay, Jesus, I want you to live in my heart. Then you open the door. That's how you can believe in Jesus. You trust that when he says, I want to enter in, that he will enter in and he will live in your heart. So I hope that helps answer not only this question, but all the questions tonight. Guys, thank you for a few extra minutes. We had a lot of questions, didn't we? Wow. You guys impress me so much with the, not only the number, right, the quantity of your questions, but the quality. Wow, what great questions. I'm not sure when we'll get to do this again, but I would really love to. So you guys get some more questions ready. And hopefully in the next few weeks, maybe the next month, we can plan to do this one more time. Now, I'm going to pray and close our service. Uh, close our time together. If you have any extra questions, you can slip them into the comments just now. And after I'm done praying, I'll check that just to be sure. But if not, if we're out out of questions for the night, then we'll wrap it up. Father, thank you this evening that we're able to look through so many questions and verses in the Bible. Lord, I do pray that as time goes on, you'd help each one of these young people to know exactly what it means to believe in Jesus. Lord, their moms and their dads cannot do this for them. I cannot do it for them. We can just explain it to them. Lord, you're the one that is knocking at their heart. Please, please keep knocking until that door opens. Thank you for a Bible that gives us so many answers. And Lord, help us to keep our eyes focused, our eyes set on you and on your word. Thank you for this time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, no more questions. Thank you so much for your time, and Lord willing, I'll see you again soon.